From Settlement to Superpower, Introduction, Episode 4, A Second Josiah. So hello everybody, and welcome back to From Settlement to Superpower. Last week, we had this packed episode, which covered pretty much all of the rest of King Henry VIII's reign, and although we didn't actually wrap it up due to time constraints, nonetheless, Henry's reign won't hold us for all that much longer. This episode will wrap up and briefly analyze the bloody reign of King Henry VIII, and from there on we will go full steam ahead and cover the events of the brief reign of young Edward VI, which is a pretty big deal because it's when the English Reformation really turns into a Protestant Reformation. Anyways, before we get going, we're going to just zip really quickly through the religious highlights of last episode. Don't worry, this will be really quick. When the Pope refused Henry's request for his annulment with Catherine, Henry set into action a process which will culminate with the Act of Supremacy in 1534, which declared King Henry the sole head of the Church of England. Henry's new Protestant advisors, most notably Thomas Cromwell and Archbishop Cranmer, set about pushing changes in the church, including authorizing Tyndale's English translation of the Bible and encouraging the laity to read from it. So long as they had the support of Anne Boleyn, they were unassailable, but once she was beheaded in 1536, their position became more vulnerable. Henry, who remained staunchly Catholic in all matters of doctrine excepting papal supremacy, looked somewhat askance at all this reforming going on around him, and in 1539 he had Parliament pass the Six Articles, which staunchly reaffirmed the traditional Catholic dogmas on a wide range of issues, which we shall go through in this episode. By 1540, the Catholic faction had gotten the king to execute Cromwell and marry Catherine Howard, niece of the conservative Norfolk, and now the Catholic faction was in position to get to work rolling back the wave of Reformation which had been unleashed by Cromwell and Cranmer. But of course, as we all know, this opportunity was squandered by the reckless behavior of Catherine, who was shortly discovered to have been carrying on an affair with her cousin and was, in 1542, beheaded, along with several conservative noblewomen the king accused of hiding her crimes. The Howards were relieved of most of their duties, and from here on in were in a state of perpetual eclipse. The Catholic faction would not be rolling anything back. From here on in, the Seymours and Catherine Parr, the sixth and last of Henry's wives, would control the direction of the state and they were both sympathetic to reform. But the Howards continued to linger on as a political force, even if they were a greatly diminished political force. The final fall of the Howards would come at just about the same time as Henry's death. This downfall would not be caused by any misstep of Norfolk's. It will be recalled that Norfolk was the uncle of not just one, but two of Henry's wives, both of whom had been executed for treason, and yet Norfolk was still around. He was an adroit political survivor, 
and he himself was much too clever to provoke the now ailing King Henry. The problem for the Howards, however, was that Norfolk's son Henry, the Earl of Surrey, was far less prudent than his father. The Howards had always detested commoners and new men who they perceived as upstarts, Wolsey, Cromwell, the Seymours, and eventually even the Boleyns. But while Norfolk was shrewd enough to keep those prejudices quiet until the moment was right to make his move, the young and brash Surrey had none of his father's tact and good sense. Pretty soon, almost everybody who was close to the king, most notably the Seymours, realized that this impetuous young man would have to be done away with. Fortunately for them, the youngster's arrogance and presumption began to irritate even the king himself, who grew increasingly paranoid that Surrey was plotting to overthrow the Tudors and declare himself king. Then Surrey went ahead and foolishly quartered his arms together with those of Edward the Confessor, the last of the Anglo-Saxon kings of England, and in doing so, very publicly reminded everybody that he too had the blood of kings coursing through his veins. This was way too much for Henry, and in December of 1546, Henry ordered both Norfolk and Surrey arrested, Surrey on charges of high treason, and Norfolk on charges of concealing it. On January 13, 1547, Surrey was beheaded on order of the king. Norfolk was supposed to follow his son to the scaffold on January 28th, but in a remarkable stroke of fortune, King Henry VIII died on the 27th of a burst ulcer in his leg, just a single day before Norfolk was to die. Norfolk's sentence was commuted, and he would spend the entirety of King Edward VI's reign languishing in his cell in the Tower of London, stripped of virtually all of his lands and assets. So before we move on to Edward's reign, we ought to take a step back and look at the changes Henry had wrought on the religion and government of England. When we assess the eventful and bloody reign of King Henry VIII, we find four main legacies which will affect the arc of our story. The first, and most obvious, is the break between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church. This is quite clearly an event of indisputable importance for our subject, which is the history of the United States, as America's predominantly Protestant nature has had a huge effect on every single stage of its development, from the initial impetus for American colonization, all the way through to her cultural and political institutions in our own day and age. The second legacy of Henry VIII's reign was the distinctive nature of the Church of England, which will, at least on an official level, retain a great deal of the pomp, ritual, and hierarchy that has always characterized the Catholic Church. This is in stark contrast to continental Lutheranism and Calvinism, as well as for that matter English Puritanism and Scottish Presbyterianism, who generally considered the church hierarchy and ornate trappings to be no more than idolatrous props. That the Reformation in England developed otherwise is, to a large extent, the after-effect of Henry's personal theological conservatism, 
as well as his hesitancy to go all the way and embrace Protestant ideas. This allowed for a vibrant Catholic faction to entrench themselves at the English court, and this faction's power and popular support will come to necessitate some sort of compromise between hardline Protestantism and the more Catholicly inclined, which would come eventually in the form of the Elizabethan settlement of 1559. The third legacy of Henry VIII was not so much Henry's legacy as much as it was the legacies of the Tudors in general, and that was their policy of centralization. In the medieval world, the relation between the king and his vassals, as well as the quote-unquote political and administrative processes, were informal at best and anarchic at worst, a situation which, in England, was only further exacerbated by the chaos accompanying the Wars of the Roses. After Henry VII's accession to the throne at Bosworth Field in 1485, he embarked on a vigorous campaign of internal consolidation and centralization, systematizing the royal administrative apparatus and very tactfully chipping away at the powers the nobility had seized for themselves during the vacuum created by a generation of bloody civil war. Wolsey had continued this process during the first half of Henry's reign, both streamlining law enforcement as well as attempting to create a professional standing army for England, independent of the unreliable feudal levies of the Middle Ages. Henry VIII himself, however, took this centralization to a whole new level when he usurped the power of the church and proclaimed his absolute sovereignty over all England. The elimination of the church as a distinct political entity in England was nothing short of revolutionary, and paved the way for the full centralization which would ultimately follow. His final legacy which we'll discuss here, which is also his most overlooked legacy, was Henry's exponential empowerment of Parliament as a legitimate and necessary source of legislation. This empowerment came as a result of Henry's excessive reliance on Parliament to pass through numerous major acts, including the Acts of Supremacy, Succession, the Dissolution of the Monasteries, and the Six Articles. Parliament was the sole legitimate legislator. That's not to say that the king had no power whatsoever. For example, he was still able to issue bills of attainder, which effectively declared someone guilty of a crime simply because the royal we says so, without any sort of trial whatsoever. Parliament even passed an act in 1539, which declared that the king would be able to issue royal proclamations, which would then have the same power and legitimacy in the eyes of the law as an act of parliament. The devil, of course, was in the details, because the king was not granted the power to create felonies or treasons, which effectively undercut any legislative prerogatives of the king. The royal proclamation was, in the end, merely an executive instrument which the king would be able to employ to carry out minor executive functions. I think it goes without saying that the parliamentary structure of the English government will play a colossal role in the political organization of the American colonies and later, the American Republic. Okay, 
Let's get back now to the reign of King Edward VI. At the time of King Henry VIII's death, Edward was only nine years old, which meant that he would need both the Regency Council as well as a regent. According to Henry VIII's will, the realm was to be managed by a group of 16 executors, who would be assisted by a Regency Council of 12. Henry made it clear that the executors were all to be fully equal, with no man having a greater vote than his fellow. Despite this, however, after Henry's death, the Regency Council decided to name one of their own Lord Protector of the Realm, who would be in charge of the young king's safety, and who would effectively hold the reins of power. The natural choice for Lord Protector ended up being Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, brother of Jane Seymour, and uncle of King Edward. In addition to his family connections, it didn't hurt that Seymour had been generous enough to provide some gifts to those executors who wavered. Eventually, even this arrangement would bite the dust, and the executors and council would just get merged into a single privy council to advise the Lord Protector who would hold, in fact, all the power. The very first thing the executors and council did was grant themselves huge grants of land and money, having put into the dying king's will, most probably without his knowledge, a clause stipulating that any grant the king promised anybody must be paid in full. Then they all went ahead and claimed that the king had promised them titles, land, and money. But, alas and alack, had died before the gifts could be bestowed. The greatest beneficiary of this sordid embezzlement scheme was Seymour himself, who now becomes the Duke of Somerset. It is this sort of corruption and mismanagement which will come to typify the Protectorate of Somerset, and as a matter of fact, the entire regency of King Edward VI. Now believe me when I tell you that there is a great deal of intrigue and drama which occurs during Edward VI's reign, which I would absolutely love to go through on this podcast, were I not trying to get to Jamestown as soon as possible. And so, it is with a heavy heart that I must tell you that we will cover virtually none of that, and will instead focus almost entirely on the theological aspects of the reign of King Edward VI. Somerset was, like most of the executors and councillors, in favour of further reformation, and when the first Parliament of Edward's reign convened, one of the first things they did was repeal Henry VIII's six articles. As we've mentioned on several occasions, the six articles were a conservative reaffirmation of Catholic doctrine on six major questions of the time. I said we would go through them briefly, so here we go. The first article affirmed the real presence, or transubstantiation, which was the belief, based on the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, that the bread and wine used in communion actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus, as was taught by all the early church fathers. This affirmation was in opposition to the more radical reformers, who insisted that the bread and wine were merely symbolically the flesh and blood of Jesus, and that it was absurd to believe that a piece of bread is literally the flesh of God. 
The second article affirmed that it was not necessary for all people to partake in both the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. The Catholic Church maintained, since the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, that since God was equally present in both the bread and wine, it was sufficient for the individual to partake of only one of the two. This position led to the Church gradually ceasing to offer the laity the wine, on the grounds that they may have not been pure enough in either body or mind. The Protestants challenged this practice and perceived it to be the Church withholding the sacrament of the Eucharist from the Masses. The third article reaffirmed the Catholic prohibition against clergy marrying. We have already seen how the Protestants opposed this prohibition, and how Archbishop Cranmer would transport his wife in a suitcase to avoid detection. The fourth article maintained that one who took a vow of celibacy was obligated to keep that vow. This was aimed at the likes of Luther and Cranmer, who maintained that those vows were meaningless, having been both made under false pretenses, as well as being contrary to God's express command to be fruitful and multiply. The fifth article defended the use of the private, or low mass, wherein the priest could perform a propitiary mass without any congregation present, which the Protestants opposed as well. The grounds for the low mass was basically that the Catholics considered the mass to be some sort of sacrifice which could be produced with or without a congregation, whereas the Protestants vehemently opposed the doctrine that any sort of sacrifice was necessary, and that meant that the mass and the sacraments were only an expression of a congregation's devotion. Finally, we get to the sixth article, which defended the auricular or private confession. This is confession as we know it today, where one goes to a priest and confesses his or her sins. Then the priest prescribes the necessary penance. Luther, Calvin, and the rest of the Protestants abhorred the idea that men needed an intermediary to go between them and God for the forgiveness of their sins. After all, they believed that that was why Jesus had died on the cross. So these were the six articles that Henry passed through Parliament. To deny any of them was heresy, punishable by death. And indeed, one of the main charges against Thomas Cromwell was that he had denied the real presence in the Eucharist. As it turned out, however, Catherine Howard and the Catholic faction fell shortly after the articles were passed, and the expected great persecution of Protestants never materialized. Despite the fact that the Protestants were not in any immediate danger from the six acts, they still considered them to be, as the Protestants put it, a bloody whip with six strings, and they lost no time eliminating it once the king was dead. The Protestants were giddy with victory, they had full control of every part of the government, and the young king was not just sympathetic to their cause, he was a zealot. A few months earlier, at young Edward's coronation, Archbishop Cranmer exhorted him to act forcefully to weed out the remnants of Catholicism. Your Majesty is God's vice-regent and Christ's vicar within your own dominions, and to see, with your predecessor Josiah, God truly worshipped, and idolatry destroyed, with the tyranny of the bishops of Rome banished from you subjects, and images removed. 
these acts be signs of a second Josiah, who reformed the church of God in his days. You are to reward virtue, to revenge sin, to justify the innocent, to relieve the poor, to procure peace, to repress violence, and to execute justice throughout your realms. For precedence, on those kings who performed not these things, the old law shows how the Lord revenged his quarrel, and on those kings who fulfilled these things, he poured forth his blessings in abundance. For example, it is written of Josiah in the book of Kings thus, Like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to God with all his heart, according to the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. This was to that prince a perpetual fame of dignity to remain to the end of days. End quote. The serious and bookish King Edward was much taken by the idea that he had a destiny of reform to fulfill, and throughout his short life he endeavored to the utmost to ensure that Catholicism was rooted out from all the land, including, by the way, his unsuccessful attempt to get his sister Mary to acknowledge the reformed faith. Indeed, he went so far as to attack the Order of the Garter, England's most prestigious chivalric order, because they revered St. George, who was the patron saint of England. Throughout 1547, the Reformation continued apace. Prominent Catholic preachers were being persuaded to publicly recant, others were leaving the country, and a wave of iconoclasm swept through the country. The images, altars, and stained-glass church windows had long been targets of the Protestants, who considered them mere idols, as Cranmer made clear in his address at Edward's coronation. Well, now those idols would go. Images, altars, relics, and windows were pulled down and smashed all throughout the country. The devotional use of candles and the rosary were condemned, and processions and the ringing of the bells were abolished. By the end of 1548, Cranmer first introduced his most lasting contribution to the Reformation, the Book of Common Prayer, to Parliament. The Book of Common Prayer was a translation into English of the old prayers, as well as some changes which reflected the shift to Protestantism. Although most of the prayers and services were really the same as they had been under the old order, there were three major differences between them. The first, and most obvious, was that Cranmer had changed the language of the Mass from Latin to English, in a clear break with Catholic liturgy. The second was that Cranmer omitted the elevation of the host, or the raising of the Eucharist as a sign of adoration. This was extremely controversial because it strongly indicated that the church no longer believed in the real presence or the transubstantiation of the Eucharist. The third and possibly the most radical of them all, at least in terms of what it concretely accomplished, was the outright abolition of the Catholic yearly cycle of feast and fast days, which was a massive departure from the Catholic way of doing things. Despite the middle ground the Book of Prayer took, or perhaps because of it, the initial Book of Prayer was disliked by both Catholic and Protestant, among the former because Cranmer had gone too far, 
and among the latter because Cranmer hadn't gone far enough. It is important for us to remember that despite all of this hullabaloo, the Reformation under Somerset was actually quite moderate, and most Catholic practices and doctrines were not forbidden, but were simply no longer required. The truly radical Reformation in England would take root only after Somerset's complete fall from power, the circumstances of which we will unfortunately barely recount. I would like to reiterate again at this point that these introductory podcasts are not meant to be a complete history of Tudor England. As I've mentioned previously, that can fill up a podcast all on its own. What we're doing here instead is giving a bare-bones account of the English Reformation in order to better understand the American experience. While I'd really love to get involved in all these dramatic intrigues and fascinating figures in detail, we simply can't. We need to get to America already. Trust me though, once we get to America, we will savor every single bite, and there won't be a juicy story that we miss out on. But to make a long story short, the unpopular Book of Prayer, a financially ruinous war with Scotland, new taxes on the nobility, widespread corruption and nepotism, as well as two major rebellions which erupted in 1549, all created an air of hostility towards Somerset amongst the nobles, who considered Somerset to be soft and inept, incapable of his job. Leading those unhappy nobles was a man who had once been Somerset's closest friend, John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick. His father, Edmund Dudley, had been an unpopular counselor to King Henry VII, and King Henry VIII, upon ascending to the throne, wasted no time in executing Dudley simply to please the people. His son John, however, was welcomed back into the king's service in 1512, and from there on in served capably as a general and later Lord Admiral. Dudley was named one of the executors of Henry's will, and had created his earldom at the same time as Somerset became duke. He expected to be a strong voice on the Regency Council, and was not pleased at all to have been frozen out of everything during Somerset's power grab. It was he, not Somerset, who had put down the largest of the rebellions of 1549, and the ambitious Warwick began to agitate that he was far better suited to the job of protector than Somerset was. Warwick gathered around himself all the conservative nobles who were horrified at the desecrations wrought by Somerset's reformation, and together they carried out a coup d'etat, unseated Somerset, imprisoned him, and installed Warwick as Lord President of the Council. Warwick then had the king create him Duke of Northumberland, and soon enough had Somerset beheaded on contrived charges of treason. Northumberland's accession was not the conservative reaction some had hoped for. Instead, it inaugurated a new era of reformation to England, and under the new duke, mainstream Protestantism became the official religion of the land. He had Cranmer revise the Book of Common Prayer to explicitly reject transubstantiation, and had Parliament declare that no other Book of Prayer was to be used in the realm. 
He also had Cranmer draft the 42 Articles of Faith, which openly repudiated Catholic doctrine and embraced that of the Protestants. The Church of England might have become indistinguishable from continental Protestantism had not fate intervened. We mentioned earlier on in this episode that at Edward's coronation, Cranmer compared the young king to Josiah, the righteous king of Judah who had eradicated idolatry from the land. As it turned out, Cranmer's comparison was more apt than he had hoped for, and like the Josiah of old, Edward VI would die well before his time. His work unfinished. In February of 1553, Edward, who had always been sickly, fell ill, and it soon became clear that this was to be his final illness. According to the Act of Succession passed by Parliament, next in line after Edward was his sister Mary, and after her, Elizabeth. This was very distressing to the fanatically Protestant Edward, because Mary had remained, like her mother, a staunch Catholic, and Edward feared, rightly so, that she would overturn everything he and his counselors had achieved. Northumberland, always driven by an unquenchable ambition, seized on the king's fears to set into action a scheme which he hoped would make his own son king after Edward's death, with himself as the true power behind the throne. Do you remember how we mentioned back in episode 0.2 the scandal caused by Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, who married King Henry VIII's sister Mary? Well, that union bore a daughter, who in turn bore another daughter, the Lady Jane Grey. As things stood, if Mary and Elizabeth were to be disqualified from the succession, Lady Jane would be next in line for the throne. Northumberland seized the opportunity, and that spring arranged for a betrothal between his own son, Guildford, and the Lady Jane. That having been accomplished, he persuaded the dying King Edward to draft his now infamous Devise for the Succession, wherein he wrote that since Mary and Elizabeth were both attainted by charges of bastardy, the succession would instead pass over to the Suffolk line and Jane should succeed him as monarch. This directly contradicted Parliament's act of succession, but Northumberland hoped that the Protestant nobles would rally behind Jane, and thus ensure a Protestant succession. As we will see next episode, boy was he wrong. Before we end today's episode, I'd like to tell all you listeners that I really do want to hear your feedback. If you like the podcasts, by all means, give it a high rating and leave a review on iTunes. If you don't like it as much, well, you can pass on the iTunes review, but at the very least send me an email from settlementtosuperpower at gmail.com. I do hope to hear from you, and I hope that with your input and feedback, I will be able to make this podcast better and better. Anyways, next week we're going to cover the unfortunate reign of Lady Jane Grey and then the reign of that unfortunate queen, officially styled Mary I, unofficially known as Bloody Mary. I'll see you then on From Settlement to Superpower. (laughs) 